Welcome to the Suffering Podcast. Each week, we walk you through how suffering is the way to sustainable success and the path to greatness. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. Visit thesufferingpodcast.com for complete details. Please subscribe and like to get our latest episodes as soon as they drop. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn for exclusive content. Please comment. We may read your comments on future shows or even reach out to you for a future guest appearance. Let's embrace how suffering forges bonds that last forever, showing we are never alone. So get so ready, get ready, sit down, sit down, and strap it, strap it. Sit your ass down, down. Sit your ass down, down. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to stop the pain. Sit your ass down, down. Sit your ass down, down. Strap it, strap it. This is gonna hurt, gonna hurt. This is gonna hurt, gonna hurt. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. This is gonna hurt. It's time for the Suffering Podcast. Dented Development Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to assist first responders and their families repair dents caused by suffering. Help us support the ones who take care of us selflessly. Dented things can still operate, but may not be as pretty as they once were. Make a difference and go to DentedDevelopmentProject.com to get involved today. Our heroes need our help. The first recorded crime in history was murder. Cain killed Abel, then denied his involvement. Since then, murder and other crimes have written themselves into history at every turn. The majority of the world is guided by a moral compass that tells our souls what's right and what's wrong. For some, that moral compass needs recalibration. For many, it's broken. But for most, they often choose to ignore it. When we choose to let our moral compass fall on deaf ears, we hurt others. Sometimes in horrific fashion. With each transgression we engage in, a piece of our soul disappears until one day we wake up and question everything that we thought to be true. When we finally wake, for those that are lucky enough to do so, we can only hope that there is something left inside worth saving. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felace, and welcome back for Season 2 of The Suffering Podcast. On this episode, we welcome former hitman John Elite to discuss the suffering of a mobster. John had to suffer and recalibrate his moral compass. This is going to be a raw and unfiltered discussion about the life known as La Cosa Nostra. Not the romanticized depiction that you see in movies, but the real emotions and suffering that this life brings. John, thanks so much for traveling all this way. I appreciate it. You're sitting here with a couple humps. I mean, look, you're dressed up. Look at us. Yeah. We got the we got the giveaway t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. I really appreciate you coming in. I know you had to travel quite some way, and you're always doing media, and you're always bouncing around. And how the heck did you end up in New Jersey? That's the worst place in the world. I got to tell you, you know what? You know, most people from New York, when they go over the bridge, they think it's a big deal. So, you know. <laughs> but, but usually you go the other way. You go east to Long Island. 
Yeah, I was just smarter because my family, my father had a club out there called Hammerheads. Oh, yeah. And I know you guys are familiar because of Lamar's East. And, yeah, you know, know so, it well. Yeah. yeah. So for all of you out there, Mike's father owned Lamar's East, right? Lamar, Lamar East, Lamar Far East. Really? There was three of them at one yeah, point. Yeah, it was three, yeah. And he put you as far away, so he put you in the Far East? No, no, I, I was in Brooklyn. I, <laughs> I never went to Far East. I couldn't find Comac, Long Island. Never mind. Worked the club there. So, John, you've lived a life that obviously people write books about because you went from this person that was in this life that is very romanticized in movies and in literature and all types of media. The reason I brought you here today, because I know from the way I grew up that it's, it's not really that. Would that be a fair assessment? No, you're being nice. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's the mythology about it and everybody wants to, you're John elite, All right, You were John Gotti's hitman. And now you're a media star. How does this, in this country, I mean, this is the greatest country in the world because stuff like that can happen. How did you get from there to there? You know, I, I think the upbringing, obviously, from my neighborhood, it was the, the norm to get involved with the mob. There was I was introduced to gangsters my whole life from my father being around guys and being from an area where Vito Genovese grew up. And uh, Lucky Luciano's cousin was my, one of my father's childhood friends and partners. <laughs> Blackie and, and, you know, my baseball coach in boxing, the guy that's involved in me in boxing, uh, his father, Fat Andy Ruggiano, was the boss of my neighborhood, was, you know, Albert Anastasia's and Murder Inc.'s guy. So I'm still friends with the Ruggiano brothers, Albert and, and Anthony, but we were all introduced to them through their father, who was, you know, a major boss, and uh, me through them as kids and, and my father's relationship. So it's kind of normal for me. You see Bronx Tale, all right, and you see the kids looking up to these guys on the street corner in the, the nice suits, driving the nice cars. Is that what it was like for you growing up? Yeah, well, my father used to take me as a young kid to the Bronx, South Bronx, and it was a, it was a gambling den in the back. My uncle was a, a, a big card player, and he was partners also with Blackie. He, he was the dealer of the game. And these guys were introduced to me as uncles, you know, as I'm a kid. You know, so I'm three, four, five years old, and they're giving me 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 20 bucks, giving me ice cream. I'm watching them pulling up. In those days, it was with a Lincoln or a Caddy, brand new, dressed real slick. And my dad's telling me, oh, these guys are, are good guys, you know. And I see that, that power, even as a young kid, words don't need to be said. As a young kid, kids are smart. You know, they see everything and their eyes are wide open and they're watching. And, you know, I'm looking at them like somebody would look at a, a movie star. Well, that's what I was saying. You're, you, the kids can pick up on that, I guess, power or, or magnetism of certain people like that. And I know, I know a lot of those guys in that life and they did have that for whatever other faults they had. They had that magnetism. Well, I, you know, it's like, you know, I'm a big animal guy, right? So, you know, animals have an instinct mm -hmm. and they know who's good or bad, who, who's got, who's strong and who isn't, who they can test. And I think as a kid, you start picking up those instincts very early if you're from the streets. And I happen to grow up in the streets. So you start picking up little things, like you said, and you can see that they have power. You know, there's not all of them, but the top guys, you can see the way they maneuver themselves, the way they handle them, the way they walk, that stride. And the way other people treat them. And, and that's the other yeah. thing. So you're a kid watching how you might perceive a, a guy who's a tough guy, even though you know, as a young kid, you're saying you see a strong guy, you see a big guy, you see a tough guy, the way his look is a tough guy. And you see them the way they're, they're handling some of these guys. So you understand right away as a kid, wow, this guy looks really tough, looks really strong. But yet he's bowing down to this guy. And, you know, you, you put that in the, in your bank 
as a kid. Oh, yeah, absolutely. By the way, I for, you got past our security coming down here. <laughs> My dog is upstairs. She's been, she just wanted to sleep. But usually I do the dog test. My dog doesn't like you. Get the hell out, man. I don't know. I don't want... Well, the dog liked me, I think, because I have the same lights you got in the front. I never see anybody <laughs> those lights. So you grew up in you grew up in Queens, correct? Queens, yeah. You have this mafia presence around you. Was there anything else besides that life for you that you were looking forward, or was this your goal? Because I know a lot of kids that grew up that way. No, my you know my goal really was sports. But the problem with sports is. When you go into a gym and you're boxing, it's all gangsters there, especially in back in my day. So everybody that's hanging around is either a gangster or involved with gangsters. So you're right back in that same mold. And then baseball is a big baseball player. So my coach was the boss, Andy Ruggiano's son, Albert. So even that, and you know, then I go to my local barber to get a haircut. That's my father's bookmaker. So <laughs> it's like you couldn't get away from no, it. No, you couldn't get away from me. You're you're involved in it. But you're not even Italian though. I'm Albanian, and uh, you know the. Hey, the, so my grandmother's Albanian. See that? Uh, you see, that's why my father got along with your father. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, coming from that culture, saying you know, being Albanian, people in the states really don't understand the relationship in Italy, especially in the mafia, is Albania and Italians are very close. They they got a brotherly relationship. They do business together. They work together. Calabria is mostly Albanian, or, or a good part of it. I shouldn't say mostly. is a, a good part of them Albanian that live there. In Barry, Italy, it's Albanian. And our culture, television, radio, TV, uh, and the language, a lot of Albanians speak Italian also. So there's a, there's a close-knit relationship. There. Well, the language is kind of similar. In different ways. I mean, we we, we speak a, a very old tribal language. Different clans speak yeah. different. Albanian is a very difficult language to understand. It's not based in Latin Albanian. No. No. no see, no. that's that's the... Like, I can, I can understand because I speak Spanish. I can understand about every third word of Italian. Portuguese, I'm getting better at just because I have the Latin base. <laughs> I know every third word of English you say. <laughs> I learned to speak a little Portuguese. Well, I, I speak pretty good from jail, from being in prison in Brazil. I do it because of the where I work now, all the all the laborers are Portuguese, and yeah. and it's probably the same as jail. If you don't learn their language, you're going to get made fun of right. a lot. Yeah, they're going to take advantage. So that, but that's the whole reason I learned Spanish. Is that why you make fun of them a lot? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he can't spell por- Portuguese. <laughs> speak it. By the way, it's a country, not a role. I just want to let you know that. Listen, I speak Portuguese role. (laughs) (laughs) If you were to think of a percentage of how many kids you grew up with, what would the percentage be approximately of of those that went into that life, into into the mafia life? You know, it seems like a lot of guys, because those same guys I grew up with, we stayed friendly through the streets. But in percentage of the neighborhood, very, very small percentage. The difference is a lot of their fathers didn't grow up in Lower East Side in Manhattan, like my father did with guys like Vito Genovese or, or Blackie Luciano. So the exposure my father gave me with these guys was at a very young age. And and he hung around the track with his gangsters. He hung around the box. He was a boxer. He was in the Navy. In the Navy, he was boxing also. So he stood in parlors and OTBs and everything where there was gangster exposure and he brought us with. Now, my other friends, their fathers, Either were in a bar, in a bar drinking in a pub, or they were, you know, going to work, or they were, they really didn't have the same involvement. So their exposure was a little bit of a minimum mm. that mine was. Well, a lot of it's got to be being accepted and being trusted. Like you said, I mean, you were calling him uncle at, at three years old. So you're yeah. accepting into that. But the guy who's hanging out in a pub all day and his kids are running around, he's not going to be accepted into that lifestyle. 
No, and you know, you made a good point because the you know the guys that want to troll or talk, they they always say the same thing. Well, he's not Italian. How would he be around all these bosses? Because I was raised around him. So there's a difference of why I was accepted at such a, you know a young age yeah. and being Albanian in Italian culture. That comes from growing up with. Al Greco, or growing up with Lucky Luciano's cousin, Blackie, or growing up with uh, Fat Andy Ruggiano and his son. So you're accepted from day one because of these guys are your uncles. Did you ever get your father to tell you some of the stories of the old days? Oh, yeah, he always told us stories. <laughs> that, that's the golden era of the mafia, you know, the Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky days. And then when you were in it with Gotti, that's like the Camelot, yeah. you know, right before the fall. Yeah, yeah. God, I'd love to sit there and pick those stories. Uh, those, well, those stories and it, nothing more for entertainment than than for me well think about being a young kid right and you're around these bosses and my father glorifies them to me and then you got movies like the godfather back then and you know you have other movies that people really don't know of like you get the irish gang the westies you had state of grace i don't mm -hmm. know if you guys ever seen mm -hmm. it with sean penn great movie so if you're a young kid and you're already influenced in this life and then you further influence yourself watching the godfather and different mob pictures and the Bowery Boys when we were kids. You know, so, you know, you start watching that with James Cagney and, and you relate. That's what I was just talking about that with Dowd yesterday. Yeah. So the, how we, we got in contact with John is through Mike Dowd, yeah. which, again, the most unlikely pairing in the world for, for us. I, I just I genuinely like that guy and yeah. I owe him a lot because he, he just seems to – Brighten my day, but he's out of his fucking mind. He's out of it, and I'm going to say it on air. He's out of his. Mike, you're out of your fucking mind. Oh, Mike thinks. I think Mike knows he's out of his fucking mind. <laughs> he revels in it. Yeah. When somebody tells me, "Oh, you used to be wild," I laugh. I look at Mike now, and I go, "Mike." And then I, he knows what I'm thinking. I'm going to say, "You're out of your mind." I'm level-headed, actually. I'm not really that bad. You have to calm Mike down yeah, every yeah. once oh, in a while. hundred percent. You're growing up. At what point? Is there like an entry level crime or was it petty stuff? How, how did you, there's got to be a ladder to climb. How does that happen? You know, in, in the old days when I was a kid, you had to be first off aggressive, right? Because the old times were really World War One, World War Two. Take the, the different type of men back then as the world evolves. There's a different understanding of, you know, the way a man behaves. But back when I was younger, men come off very tough. You know, they come with a big bravado. So if you're not a little wild in the street or, you know, they used to call me spanky and different names because I was always getting into shit. So I started trying to be like them. And trying to be like them, it means you got to try to be tough. You got to prove yourself. You got to prove yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And now I think the mob has changed where these guys don't earn their way anywhere, in my opinion. Very few of them belong where they're at. And here's part of what you said at the beginning of your opening statement. These guys are, a lot of them, good ass kisses, are good messenger boys. Some of them are good earners. And that, that's what brings them. But they don't earn their way. It's not like a fighter that gets in a ring and, you know, to get, it, get to a title, he wins 10, 15, 20 fights before he sees a title shot. These guys are jumping into positions they don't, they don't really belong in. That's kind of the concept of this show is you, you have to go through suffering in order to appreciate or earn that position. And when that doesn't happen, that position means very, very little. What you're seeing today, I mean, you have bosses flipping. You have bosses flipping. Why is that? Because probably has something to do with being given those positions. They didn't earn it. They didn't work their way work their way up, like you said. It. And like, listen, John, if I'm wrong, please correct me because I'm an idiot. 
So I'm, I'm, I'm theorizing. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to step in front of you. Listen, I'm what, a big what, idiot, but, listen, but what, I think we can figure it out together. That may be the first time Kevin called himself an idiot. Yeah. He's been called an idiot on here a yeah. lot. So it's... Why don't you call John an idiot? Like you were no, saying, or, well, you, what were you t- saying before he came in? I said, John. I said he's going to kick your ass. That's what I said. <laughs> don't listen to these guys. These guys are in shape. They're big guys. <laughs> I got nothing but respect for you for the main reason that you did what you did. And and the same thing with Mike Dowd. And uh, I say it very clearly that I never wanted to like Mike Dowd. After two minutes of talking to you, I realized that you're somebody who just, you own it. And it's it's a very rare thing in but this But they world. have that, that quality and personality where, like you said, when, when Mike came in, being former cops, we didn't want to like him. Right. You know, because he was the dirtiest cop ever. Yeah. The first day we met him, yeah. he yeah. came right up to us and said, I'm Mike Dowd. I'm the dirtiest cop in New York City history. Just that 900-pound gorilla in the room. And then with yours, and I've watched so many things of yours, you own it. You say, yeah, this is what I did, but it's all bullshit. And I've heard you say that before. It's bullshit. Where was your introduction into this life? You know, after the initial romance at a kid phase, I started staying with a lot of street kids from my neighborhood. Not the athletes anymore, but the street kids. And I was working in a delicatessen. And that delicatessen has to be, honestly, one of the funnest places I've ever worked, but the, the, the biggest downfall in my life. Because I got exposed to the drug business in there. I got exposed to more gangsters in there. I started working directly for another guy, uh, George Gaddy, not Gaddy, Gaddy, who was a bookmaker, great guy. And his brother, Lou, owned a, a taxi cab stand on the corner of 79th Street, Jamaica Avenue. And I dated his daughter, Louisa. Wasn't that, I, that name sounds familiar. I think it was, I think Joe Pistone talked about it in one of his shows. That's why I, I heard that name, yeah. Gaddy. Well, he was, he was powerful in the neighborhood and he was another guy. Lou was more of a, just a jeans and t-shirt guy, but George was real slick. He always had jewelry on, pulled up in his brand new caddy and he took a liking to me. And then when a gangster takes a liking to you, they start using you and said, okay, this guy's no, this kid's not a dummy. You know, he's, I can trust him. And then he starts bringing me up. Was, in, was in there life. like a, a, Hey kid moment? Like, Hey kid, come here. Yeah. yeah. Because he used to come in the deli all the time when I worked there. So he would come in and he liked his, he used to get tea more than coffee and he would ask for tea a certain way. And I guess some of the other kids, they wouldn't do what, you know, what he asked. So he's, you know, I'm not thinking, I'm not making him fucking tea. So, you know, but to him, he said, okay, this kid pays attention a little bit. So when he came in, he goes, no, let the kid make the tape. They all called me kid because I was real small too on top of that. And the other guys that worked there were my age too, but they, he called me kid. He'd say, let the kid make the tea. He knows how I like it. So I used to give him the tea. And then before you know it, you know, you have bookmakers. This guy, Etor, that was an ex-pro fighter. He lost a couple fingers. He would be on in the back room taking action. And he, they'd ask me to run numbers from across at his phone to across the street to the around the corner it was right there though around the corner to george and you know back then you had the horses and but you know they could try to pose bet them so you know you didn't have the technology you have today you couldn't get away with it but back then they used to try so they would cut off a race and they'd give me the paperwork run it across the street run a run an envelope over bring money back and forth and so now i'm working at a delicatessen but i'm also running errands for them and i'm making more money running errands than and my father was okay with it, you know, because I told my father, I met this guy, I met that guy. And he thought, all right, Johnny's going to be like me. He's just going to play around with sports and, and book make and, you know, make a couple side bucks. No big deal. That's, that's what he That's thinking. amazing that your father was okay with that. Because if my sons 
ever did something like that, I'd brain him. You know what the th difference is to my father? He's an immigrant coming from Albania, third world country, turned into communism. He's a cab driver. He's a degenerate gambler. Everything he's doing, my whole house on a Saturday college or a Sunday football, pro football is 16 bookmakers from my uncle lived on the top floor. We lived in the middle. My, my other uncle's downstairs. They're all calling different bookmakers. <laughs> they all stretch the line to the middle of the hallway so they can get who has the better line. And they bet. So now we're involved. My, me and my brother are running up and down the same way, passing messages, doing this. And they're putting in action. And now they got us betting with them. You know, a little bit of money. And oh, we're yeah. kids. You know, five bucks. And you know, back then it was a lot of money, five bucks, actually. And what, what year are we talking about? What era? Uh, um, that's got to be like 1967, 68. Right. You know, so you're going back sometime. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an old bastard. You look a lot better than yeah. you. you look, how old are you? Better than you. 59. You're 59. Bro, you look like 10 years older than John. You shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> Only 55. <laughs> yeah, but you look like you're 75. You look, you look 20 years older than both of us. <laughs> Listen, when you go there, do they automatically give you the senior citizen discount? I, yeah, I got my AARP card and everything. <laughs> now, now, you mentioned a brother before. Did he get involved also? No, not like I did. No, very little, actually. I don't know why. You know, we talked about that. He got involved later on in stocks and stuff like that. He was maneuvering with, you know, the market, and he got involved with gangsters, too, in a different way. And he fooled around a little bit at one time with drugs, some with me and some with another guy. But he didn't have that attachment to the mob. He wasn't a shooter. He didn't want to be a shooter. He was tough with his hands because he was always boxing, but he didn't want to get involved in that, uh, that aspect yeah. of it. So you running, you running up. You should have become a politician if you really want to be a gangster. Oh, they're the biggest gangsters around. <laughs> that's where you, that's he, where the money he, is. He, he, you know what? I, I say it all the time because I love politics. And I say the same thing. How am I going to talk to these kids when you're teaching them by example, right? If we do the right thing, we show them we're doing the right thing. When I did the wrong thing, I showed them I used to do the wrong thing. But when they're watching politicians and, and kids, like we said earlier, even young, young kids, they're not stupid. They see what's going on. They're saying, why should I listen where they're corrupt, more corrupt than you guys? Well, a lot, of, a lot of people have a common misconception about people in that lifestyle of the mafia. I've heard this said before where like, they, they're too stupid to do anything else. My response to them is always, these are very, very smart men. Yeah, they're just absolutely. not smart in the way you think that they're smart. But these guys know how to read a situation better than anybody else I've ever come across. Well, we talk about it all the time. Street smarts is a hell of a lot better than book smarts in my world. What world you, is that? You, Hogwarts? <laughs> Fuck it. I mean, you went to college, right? Yes, I did. <laughs> my point exactly. So I'll take my street smarts over his book smarts anytime. They're smart in so many different ways that it's some of the arts that they have in being able to, to look at an angle that you're not able to look at, you know, I, I, Michael Francis. So he was able to look at an angle of the gas business that nobody was able to look. That takes intelligence. That takes true intelligence. Well, you know, I look at like, you know, guys like, uh, fat, fat Andy or John Gotti, uh, the father, these guys had the ability to be CEOs of companies because I mm -hmm. watched them since I'm a kid maneuver guys. Well, in all actuality, they, they were a CEO yeah. of a company. But, you know, it like, to, no matter point, what to they Kevin's did. point, whatever they, he really could have been some, some businessman, John. Yeah. He just didn't believe in himself in business. Like, he didn't even look at that. It, as far as he was concerned, ah, that's for, for stiffs. That's for regular citizens. 
He didn't want to know that part. But when you'd analyze, or I was analyzing, hey, this guy knows how to read somebody just by their gestures. Yep. You know, and that's to your point, Kevin, mm -hmm. is they do. We learn something at a young age. And, and here's one of the things I've always done. I walk in a room and everybody wants to be the alpha man. And I'm talking about gangsters now, right? And they're, they're, he wants to say he's the toughest. He wants to say he's the toughest. He's the smartest. And I used to just kind of sit back and watch them and then see where they're weak. And then slowly, like a horse race, step in front of them, step in front of that guy, step in front. Because I knew they were faking it. Well, you know, when their enemy thinks that they're at their strongest, that's when you can attack. Yeah. Because that, that's that's an art of war, Sun yeah. Tzu thing. I watched that growing up because I lived very close to the Philadelphia mobsters in Atlantic City. You have somebody like Phil Leonetti. Right. I don't know if you ever met Phil Leonetti. No, I never met him. So Phil ended up, he, he was uh, Nicky Scarfo's nephew. Right. That guy would have been successful no matter what he did. No matter what he did. And to prove my point, after he rolled on Nicky Sr., he got out after five years. You know, I, he killed uh, Vincent Falcone in Margate. He gets out. He's been clean. Well, he hasn't been arrested in, it's got to be almost 30 years. And I know for a fact he's had multiple successful businesses. He just got involved with the wrong life and be, was successful at whatever he did. You know, he just got into that. I, I don't like guys making excuse for their lives, but he's one that actually has an excuse. You know, he was raised by his mother's brother. Mm -hmm. He's exposed in a life every day pushed into that life. So out of all the guys, I think he really does have a, a real excuse. And Nicky was wild. <laughs> so he was intimidated. His Nikki. kids were even yeah. worse. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So I knew Mark. Yeah. Mark Mark ended up hanging himself. Right, I remember. But Mark used to get, and this, this always got me crazy. Mark used to get shoved in a locker almost yeah. every day because he had a big mouth. Right. And I'm, I'm standing back going, are you guys fucking nuts? <laughs> Do you know who His he is? His <laughs> father is the boss of the Philly mob. But I went to a school... One of the underbosses down there was a guy named Chucky Merlino. His daughter, I think I got it right, his daughter was Monique. Gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. Nobody would go near her because her father was Chucky Merlino. Yeah. Did you ever get that where your your father was this person who was knocked around? You know, he knocked around in that lifestyle. They say, oh, that's, yeah. that's elite. You know, yeah. that's elite's kid. Did you ever get that? Yeah, you get it. And, you know, you get it on in both aspects or you get it when you walk in a place yourself and- just like Fat Andy would walk in and his son Anthony would tell stories about how the whole place would love him, but then they'd empty out. They were also afraid of him. So I had like legitimate friends, you know, regular nice guys. And I'd come in a place and, you know, I'd either be by myself with a couple of guys and my regular friends, it's no big deal. They grab you by the neck. They're giving you, you know, a, a little headlock. A headlock. Yeah. So they're giving you a headlock and other guys are looking at him like, hey, what are you crazy? What are you, what are you doing? And they don't know that we're friends that way, right. right? You know, because they're my childhood friends that really live a good life and normal. But then a guy made a mistake and didn't know one of my friends who he's passed away since in a car accident, didn't know who he was. And they put a bottle across his head with a couple of guys. When I found out about it, everybody's like, uh, you know, and they go, what are you going to do? And he said, they didn't know that, you know, Joe was your friend. That, you know, he was like, well, my brother really close to me. I says, yeah, well, that's on them that they didn't know. 
How do they? So, how do you unring yeah. that bell? Uh, you don't, because I rang his bell after they rang his <laughs> bell. So you know, I I, I kind of did the same thing. I, I, I felt their mistake right there. By the way, yeah. as soon as you told that story, I'm like, oh, oh I was going to get the, the main guy, and he he met a friend of mine, and we met, and I didn't do nothing to him. I was very close. I was laying on him to shoot him. The other, the one guy, I got him coming out of the bar. As soon as he stepped out the bar, I put a bat across his head. I hit him across the forehead. And then uh, he went down, and it's my friend's bar. It was the White Horse on Jamaica. It was a known place where a lot of guys got killed in the bar, in front of the bar, on the corner. So it's got a, a big body count there. People don't realize, because they see it in movies all the time. They see that they see mafia movies, and they see gangster movies where somebody's getting baseball batted. I saw somebody get hit with a baseball bat once, hmm. full force. So did I. And the noise it makes is unlike anything I've ever heard. Cracking a coconut. It'll shock you to your to your soul, but everybody sees it. Ah, you know, you got a baseball. Well, where do you hear it? Where do you hear it? Yeah, you know that's the problem with movies and stuff. Well, guys that glorify it because you know when you see girls that turned on by it or guys like it, they're not there when someone's dying. They're not there when you're watching the sucking the blood out of them and you're busting their head open and all the blood's all over you. They're not there for those parts. And the warmth of the blood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've gotten a spatter on yeah. you. You feel. Like you feel it. I don't. I don't. I mean, know. I think the first guy I actually killed, if I, I think it's him, is the guy I, bat, I batted. Uh, he was a biker, and they jumped the same guy, Joe. Uh, and I, I came to the bar uh, alone. Uh, I baseball batted another guy, Kenny Nicole, who was my friend also and Joe's friend, who happened to be there. And he, he came up behind me. I thought he was the fourth guy because it was three of them. And uh, I cracked him across the head, too, by accident. I had to take him. I took him out to Long Island, to Suffolk County. So when the police investigated, we didn't bring him to a local hospital in Jamaica. When I beat the one guy, you know, and, and this is, you know, people don't understand, like, because it, when I'm talking about this, it's like I'm talking about a different person that I seen do it. You get a detachment to it. I don't know why, you know, at that period. Uh, because you, you, you have to. Other, because you have to. The psychology behind that is you have to detach yourself because... From what I know about our conversations is you are a good man. And if you don't detach yourself, you can no longer be a good man because you did some horrible things. Yeah. You, you follow me? That's how you have to move on. But I suffered through a lot of this. is one of the things, and I'm glad that I'm on the show with you guys because this is what it's about. Not sleeping, having very serious depressions, crying, uh, trying to apologize, nightmare. You have all this. So I don't like when these guys like... You'll get a guy that'll see me or some or see somebody like me. It doesn't have to be me, anybody. Or just regular guys in the street. They're always sizing a guy up. You know, their insecurity is they're sizing the other guy up. And you know, he don't look like nothing. Well, he's not all jacked up because they think if you're jacked up, that it makes you th more dangerous. I'll show you skinny guys and you guys know MMA fighters, boxers, karate guys. You know, you don't have to be all jacked up or anything. You got to have a talent. And you and you and if you have a talent to hurt somebody and you have guys like... You know, I was on another show with Vets and JD. These guys are, you know, these snipers, they're marksmen. You know, so. I just he, got choked out last night by a 145-pound man. Yeah. I got choked out in jujitsu. Listen, let's not get into your sex stories. <laughs> <laughs> We're not here to talk about that now. Uh, so but there is anxiety because you do. Ha and that proves what I always believed is everybody has a moral compass. Some moral compasses are broken. Some of them need recalibration. And some of them are just ignored. When you're going at somebody with a baseball bat, is it blind fury? Or do you think this stuff through? Or do you think that's what's supposed to happen? Well, well think about this. I'm, on, I'm at home. They call me from a payphone. The door's locked. 
The place is called the Old Brother Inn. The owner's name is Buddy. He's an ex-cop, by the way. The girl that's behind the bar name's Kathy. I got a good memory, right? So when I'm getting to complete details for people that, you know, always questioning things. And I didn't come with a gun. I could have brought five guns. I could have made six calls and had 20 guys there. It's my drug spot. You know, and this is in the middle of my heyday. Instead, I went by myself with a bat. And I walk up and the three guys are outside the bar. They can't get in because the door is, is actually a really thick, secure door because of all the violence. So the the, the owner, the and this is, you got to think about it, it's in the 80s. He had a buzzer on the door. He had a gate on the door. He had a door that's got to be six, seven, eight inches thick. It was huge because of all the, the action that was there, the shootings and different things. When I come there, I tell them, come out of the bar. It's the end of the night. It's three, four in the morning. And nobody else is around, so it was late. It was at closing. And the three guys in there and my friends come out of the bar. Now, I know what I'm going to do. I know I'm not losing. I know I'm going to crack his head open and I'll get to the other two guys next. So who knows what's really, you're, you're so focused, tunnel vision to get it done. And you know you're going to do it. And I also know the way when I, as soon as I get out of the car, back to what you said again earlier, is, you know, they're faking it. The way I came out of the car with the bat. If they were that dangerous and they really meant what they said, they should have been on me as soon as they see me walk out the door with the bat. Yeah, it's a threat. Yeah, it's, absolutely. They know I'm there. Yeah. So they didn't. You ain't so, there to play baseball. So, right. <laughs> so you know you got you got the advantage on on the first thing, that they're on their heels a little bit. And then I was aggressive. So when I hit the guy, I didn't hit him once. I hit him once initially. He went down. Then I went after the other guys. And then I went back to him. And I must have hit him with the bat legitimately 7, 10, 12 times. Now, Kenny Nicole, I always tell everybody, is very much alive. His sister is his brother, Ron. They all work for me. He's uh, not bet your you, sister. Bet you he never forgets that night. Or maybe no, he did. He, <laughs> no, he and he was a nice guy. He was like a, you know, hangout, cool guy. He ain't, a, he ain't a tough guy. I mean, he'd fight, but he was no, like, troublemaker guy or anything. And, you know, I heard he went to Kentucky. He's a good guy. And I heard him bad by accident. And I joked with him afterwards. Maybe you were better off for me not coming here. <laughs> but, you know, the the thing is, that detachment, I remember I didn't even think about what I did to him. The next day, nothing. I didn't think about it. That's why that, that was my next point was, was there any remorse about what you No, I justified shit? it. You know what my justification was? Well, they were going to hurt my, my, my friends, my brother there, you know, so-called brother, you know. And, now, and so I justified it so I can live with it, you know. And I think that's what you do when you, you're doing what I was doing for a living. All new Suffering Podcast gear is here. The show depends heavily on our supporters to get the word out. Let people know that suffering is a team sport and no one is alone in their struggles. Wearing the Suffering Podcast merchandise accomplishes that goal. Check out our store at thesufferingpodcast.com or check our show notes for the link. Your support and love means everything to us. What was it like the first time you let that go? You know, you, you, did, your, you did your stretch in prison. You did 18 years, correct? Yeah, in and out, yeah. Okay. So you did your stretch in prison, and then somehow you, you're this media guy. I mean, you're John Elite, podcast, everything. The first time you told about some act of violence that you did, what did it feel like? I, I remember when I, you know, I went to therapy for a lot of years, and she had me, my, and she's very familiar with me. So she knows my personality. She knows when I'm covering it up. She knows when I wasn't opening up fully. And she was also got me to break down a couple of times and not a couple more than a couple of times in her presence. But outside of her presence, I would break down myself 
in my room. This was before I changed my life. Even after leaving therapy, sitting in the car and breaking down. Oh, yeah. And I, even before I went to therapy, yep. prior to that, I would break down on my... But then if somebody did something stupid to me, like if, if you were bothering me and then Kevin was bothering me and this, I wouldn't maybe do anything to any of you. And then maybe a week later, if somebody else didn't pay a debt and I warned them to pay the debt, I wouldn't warn them again. Damn. You know, I'd go do something to him. I'd shoot him. I'd do this. And then I'd go see you after that and say, he got shot because you and then shoot you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know the thinking behind that, to be honest with you, but. <laughs> he did everything, by the way. He did it all. But it's amazing because I know. Kevin owes me money, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I just want to tell you. Kevin, we want, we want the money, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> How much? How much is McDonald's? <laughs> <laughs> because I know for me, when I, when I started finally talking about the deepest, darkest time in my life. I felt better. I felt lighter. Because what I always say is we put this armor on ourselves to protect us from things that we don't like about ourselves. So we protect ourselves and we don't ever want to get hurt by that stuff again. But over the course of 20 years, you're pretty damn heavy and weighted down with armor. But once I started talking about stuff, pieces of armor, and I'm not talking about crimes. I'm just talking about violence that's happening. Yeah. Armor just started popping off, and I felt lighter. It was like it's like doing squats for twenty years and then dropping the barbell. Like, wow, this this kind of feels pretty interesting. Was yeah. it anything like that? Yeah, because you had a lot of armor on. Yeah, I'm sure you did. And, you and, had to. And I think that you know, the more I worked and talked to people like yourselves and you know, cops, you know, you know, to get into that real quick, I had a lot of cop friends, which yet, is amazing to me. Yeah, because you know, in my neighborhood. You become a gangster, you become a cop, you become a fireman. That's really what everybody became in my neighborhood. So I went the gangster route. Some of my co friends became cops and some of them became firemen. And the firemen were more the parties back then, you know, drinking, snorting coke, this and that. And, you know, we'd all hang out and, you know, we'd joke around with our, our friends, you know, that were cops. They'd come in the bar and we'd tell them, uh, you got your cuffs on you today or you leave them in the car. You know, we joke around. <laughs> and then we joke and tell them you want a line. And, you know, they get the fuck out of here, John. But, you know, and then you start saying to yourself, they're not far off. I made some statements in schools when I was talking to parents. And I said to parents, you're not far from me. It's your line's not that far like you think. And one woman got really like, you know, she didn't like what I said. She was nasty and whatever. And I said to her, you have children here, right? I says, you're a killer. It's just your line's different than mine. I says, so it depends. I said, that father right there, maybe if you said something and you threaten his daughter, he'll kill you. But I'm going to use you as an example. You have a car. If you see me in that parking lot trying to take one of your kids, would you hesitate? Would you run me over and kill me so I can't take your daughter or your son in that car with me? And you don't know what's going to happen to him. I says, very simple question because you don't want to answer because that's different. I said, it's not, not different. It's not different. It's not different. We all have the ability to kill. But most of us have a barometer what's really right or wrong before we kill. My barometer happened to be screwed because I grew up in a life where I thought it was honorable what I was doing. And he says, I know better now. And that's why I do what I do with kids now. And I try to talk to them because there's a lot of people that still try to bait me. If you follow me on social media, you got all the haters. That's I why you got to post and ghost. Yeah, I want to do what I used to do to them. You know? <laughs> but I know by doing that, and I say this all the time, I might as well look in the mirror and kill myself. So it's not worth getting at them because of my ego to kill myself anymore because I'm working through what I used to do and I'm trying to tell people, you can beat me up, you can beat me up, you can hit me with something and we'll heal physically. But emotionally, that's scars for a very long time. But that's because people don't listen to you. People don't listen to what you're saying. They just see John Elite 
the former gangster, and they're not listening to your words. Because I've listened to, I've watched a lot of you, by the way, if you haven't followed us back. I just want to let you know. Just want to let you really? know. You haven't followed us back. I stink at social media. <laughs> We're going to have to make sure we do that today. I'm just, I'm just breaking, No, really? I really didn't? No, not that I know of. I don't oh, know. Oh, we got to fix that. <laughs> just but, for that, I would have beat me up when I came in here. What's wrong with you guys? Ke- Kevin wanted to, but I talked him down. me as soon as I walked in. I talked Kevin down off the ledge on that one. <laughs> because they're not, and it was, it was the same thing with when, Mike Dow was in here. I hate to keep harping on him, but he's fucking nuts, and this yeah. is what we're going to talk about. And he's fun to talk about. Yeah. yeah. But we had one negative comment about his show. You got to remember, the majority of our audience is police and vets. Right. You know? We had one negative comment, and the comment that came in, you could tell that person never listened to the show. They just saw the name. Oh, he's a piece of shit. And the same thing goes with you. So you get those haters on there. You get the people, hey, they're, they're real tough behind behind a keyboard meet you face to face see your presence see how you carry yourself but they made here's the the point they write they are right i call myself a piece of shit in the past that's okay to say that but they should also say he's not anymore because he's changing he's trying to do the right thing a, re- so, a know, reformed piece of yeah, shit. yeah really because i call a lot of gangsters pieces of shit and, and they say oh this guy thinks he's better than everybody no i don't i know that we have an obligation as we get older to do the right thing for the next generation of kids so they don't suffer. You know, no one's perfect, right? And and some of the stuff we did was terrible. I mean, st- some of the stuff I did more than most guys was really bad. But I I recognize it, and I work on myself every day to try to change that. And I want guys that are, are police officers or firemen or CEOs or anybody to say, oh, I'd let my kid near this guy because he's going to give him a positive. Well, everybody uh, has a shot at redemption. Right. Everybody should have a chance at redemption. No matter what you do in your life, is you, you pay your price, but everybody should have that chance. And I, I give that opportunity to everybody. It's how you treat me. I mean, you walked up here today, you have a big smile on your face. And I've seen, listen, I've seen a lot of stuff you've done. You haven't had a smile on your face, but you had a smile on your face came yeah. in here. It was disarming. It was nice. Because you had the same Christmas lights as me. <laughs> Those big, ugly things, only me and you got them. <laughs> and I don't know how to work mine. My, my son goes, hey, Dad, how come you got big red balls on the tree? <laughs> my son's like, I have a smart ass. Penis envy. <laughs> <laughs> so you should have a shot at redemption, and that's what you're doing now. You're doing your penance because whatever you did in the past, you know, the past is history and the future is a mystery. You just got to figure out the message and you're getting that message out you're getting the message out that yeah i was involved in this life but it's not what you think it is how did you hook up with some would say the ultimate gangster which is john Gotti? how did you hook up with him well because he's another guy i first of all he grew up in brownsville brooklyn and i do a lot of talks there and uh, he went to frank k lane high school i went to frank k lane high school so he grew up without anything i grew up without anything so i had I could relate to him for a lot of different reasons over the years. But he took over as the captain in our neighborhood, as the boss, when Fat Andy Ruggiano went to prison. Mm -hmm. So when he stepped in the shoes, that's the next guy. So you're going to be next to him uh, if you're around the mob world. And at that time, I was around it. So his son was also near my age. And we got involved in different businesses, one bookmaking again. And John Gotti Sr.'s partner was Willie Boy Johnson, the Indian that— Later on, gets killed because he was trying to give information about Gotti, and so he gets killed. But he's his his partner in the bookmaking business. I had at the time 
the New York Mets betting with me, gambling with me. We all hung out at uh, Channel 80, Philly Basile that had the rock club. He also had that. The baseball the, players. Baseball players. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. had the equipment manager was calling in action for them. <laughs> I couldn't handle that kind of action back then. You know, they, they, they're they betting 250000 a week or whatever. Sometimes a day, they're betting a hundred grand. So I had to go to John Yachty and he sent me, he says, you'll go partners with us. And he sent me to his partner, which was Willie Boy Johnson in Brooklyn on Avenue U. And I started what they call a half sheet. So whatever action comes in, if they win, he pays it for me. So, I, you know, he can pay the debt off. Mm -hmm. If they lose, I take my cut. He takes his cut. If he pays, if he lays out 60000 I don't get no money until the 60000 comes back to Gotti's office. Then we split the 50-50. The so, obviously, it was a good thing for me. And, again, it aligns me and shows them, hey, I can also make money besides just be a wild kid selling drugs and dumb shit, you know, which... Obviously, drugs is not, uh, it becomes a big business. Again, it goes back to proving yourself. You're proving yourself yeah. in every which way, yeah. But at some time, at some point, and I know we're, we're moving past this rather quickly, but it's been told so many times. Yeah. You know, uh, he asked you to do something I can't imagine getting that order to kill. John Gotti, did, did, was he the one that came to you or did it come through somebody else? No, I came through you know, intermediaries. It came through, you know, talking to his son. We were friendly. They wanted to straighten him out at the time. They wanted and to make him. They wanted to make him, yeah. yeah. I was friendly with uh, an ex-cop. Uh, Phil Baroni was a detective that was one of my buddies. I'd take him with me. And, you know, these guys all have a different version of the hit. I didn't know about it. He's lying. He was, uh, it doesn't really matter. This is this the one point. that's in the car, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I did see something on this, yeah. So the end up is, doesn't matter what their story says. I killed a guy. Going back to being detached, when I'm in court, the prosecutor asks me questions that I thought was so bizarre. And he said to me, and I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck is this guy talking about? I mean, this is how out of it I am and how you condense it and, and block it out what you said, right? When you guys were talking about blocking it out. And he says to me, what'd you do after the murder? I'm like, what the fuck is this guy talking about after the murder for? <laughs> was, he care what I did. You know, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I don't know, I went to got late. You know, I don't remember what I answered him. <laughs> and he goes, no, immediately after, I says, oh, uh, we went to the diner. He goes, oh, what diner did you go to? I said, the Esquire. It was in Queens on, on the boulevard. So I'm still saying to myself while I'm answering the question, I'm trying to figure out why he's asking me this stuff. And he goes, well, do you remember what you ate? I go, yeah. And he goes, what'd you eat? I said, a cheeseburger with double cheese and French fries, a Coke. And he goes, that's it? I said, no, I had a chocolate pudding pie with whipped cream. He goes, how do you know? And I says, because I go to that diner all the time, late at night after clubs and stuff. I get the same thing usually. But for sure that night, that's what I got. He goes, was it good? And I'm like, <laughs> where the again. fuck are you going? Yeah, where are you going with this? <laughs> but what he was trying to show is, and then I got it. You know, I, you know, after the, the next, or well, that night I went back and I'm in my cell and I'm like, what the fuck was he thinking? Why is he asking me these questions? And then I understood. He's trying to show that I really didn't give a shit at all. I didn't lose my appetite. I'm eating, I'm joking. I'm, and that's what he's getting at, how it was just business, a typical business for us, yet we just took somebody's life. So it doesn't matter that it was an order to kill the guy. It doesn't matter. You know, I had my own personal things on with the guy also because they tried to kill me. And, you know, this doesn't matter about anything. But how the hell did I go eat and drink and laugh 
and go to sleep like it was nothing. I understand that very well because I used to have to go to a lot, of, a lot of autopsies when I was when I was a cop. I did fatal accidents, so part of fatal accidents and it's the body is a chain of evidence until there's nobody to prosecute. So you a cop has to be there while the body's getting cut cut up. I was able to detach myself that that used to be a human being to the point where I could eat in the autopsy until he got into the bowel tract. Then yeah. the smell gets right. bad. But Mike, Mike's over there gagging already. But that, that, that was the only way to do it. And you also do it through humor. <laughs> I, I, you know what you're saying? They yelled at me in, during the trial because I kept joking. And then I, I apologized to the, the jury in the courtroom. And I looked at the judge and I said, listen, anybody that knows me knows I like to joke a lot. And I said, and I do it a lot of times to relieve tension and stress. I said, I don't mean it disrespectfully to anybody. I says, and I, I know it's probably being taken that way, but that's not how I meant it. Well, we talk about it all the time, just that dark humor you have, yeah. Yeah. you know, and that's just to, whether it be alleviate the situation or, you know. That's a big deal because trauma reactions, that's showing me that trauma reactions are universal. Because you have to armor yourself up. Otherwise, that stuff is going to kill you. But that just shows me more and more that there's more that connects us than more that separates us. You were on one side of the law. We were on the other side of the law. But there's more that there's more between us than, than people like to admit. And you, you touched on something earlier. You know, everybody's one step away from being a gangster or a cop or a fireman. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Angels with Dirty Faces with James Cagney. Love it. Okay, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. Ever see that movie, Mike? No. It's It's Pat O'Brien and James Cagney and their little boys running around New York, and they're running from the cops. They're both, you know, the hooligans doing whatever they're doing. Well, they're hopping over a fence, and Pat O'Brien gets away. James Cagney gets caught. He gets sent to juvie. Pat O'Brien goes into the priesthood. And now, fast forward, James Cagney's character, Rocky, is... The head gangster, Pat O'Brien's a priest. And they're, all, they're still friends. He runs into these kids, and this goes along with your life, John. He finds these kids who idolize James Cagney, they idolize the gangster for all the mythology that's involved in it. End of the movie comes, he goes to the electric, he's going to the electric chair. Pat O'Brien comes up, the priest, and says, look, don't do this. Don't let these kids see this stuff. They're, they idolize you. They're going to follow you, and they're going to end up right in the same spot. And what's he do? He goes to the electric chair crying and screaming. And the big papers say Rocky's yellow. You know, it's just like 20s or 30s. Yeah. And that's your life right now because you could glorify what you did. You, you, you could make a lot of money glorifying what you did. Yeah. But you chose the other path. Why? Why did you choose? Was it, was it trying to get back your moral compass? Yeah, I grew up, I was, you know, like most kids, you know, and I talk about race and I talk about the police and I talk about veterans that go away and sacrifice for this country. And I say, I go back to all of us as kids. We don't hate anybody as kids. Exactly. I I say it all the time. Racism is bred into, you You know, it's taught, it's taught down through the generations. I might go to their neighborhood. He'll get hated. (laughs) He'll get hated on real quick. So I think that I want to go back to who I was, try to tell the truth to these kids. Like, if I could be you again at this age, I'd stay so far away from the street and go enjoy my life with any which way I can, but not on this dead end. And I think that's why I'm always, you know, I, I, I do a lot. Coming from me, like, you're an ex-cop. Mike, you're an ex-cop. You guys talking about cops, people are saying, oh, fuck them, they're cops, if they're, if they're cop haters, mm-hmm. right? But if you're an, a guy like me that's been on the street and I was taught since I'm a kid not to like police. 
right? It's, it's inbreded in you. Mm-hmm. And you'd say it even though you don't believe it, right? Because you, it, it was a cool thing to say because you're a street guy. You don't really believe it because a lot of my friends, like I said earlier, were cops. When I start talking about the police, because everybody jumps on the bandwagon, because weak people go in groups. So now it's the cool thing now to just attack all the police. And I give the, the true perspective of it, right? The true perspective is every time, and I love when someone says, well, that cop never did anything. He put his uniform on. He stepped out the door. And as soon as he put his feet on that pavement, it could have been his last day because it could be somebody who just wants to kill him because he's wearing that uniform. Or he could pull somebody over. And you guys know how many st- stories have you, you've heard and people you know. You pull somebody over and they shoot him. Or there's a domestic dispute, you pull him and they kill him. So I can go on with these stories. So, you know, when a guy like LeBron, who I have no respect for, because all he does is fire up these young kids in the neighborhood to hate the police. But that same guy, I said, if I came to his house with five guys and we robbed some of those millions, millions he has, he's not going to fight it out with us. He's not going to shoot it out with us. He's going to do what he just did in the court the other day in the basketball court. He called for the police. Call, yeah. He called for help and said, yeah. can you remove this, this girl and boy because they're teasing me. You're seven foot coward. That talks against the police, but you're the first one I'll call 911 when you need the police. The difference between him and Shaq, Shaq has great respect for the police. Yes, he does. He's actually a deputy. He's a deputy. I know he's yeah. deputized. Yeah. And the thing is, every time he opens his mouth, LeBron, there's kids out there that are taught to in, in Bradley to hate the police like I was taught. And we know that's a false message. So why you why a billionaire? that has the ability to help kids, save kids, and don't fire them up to get killed, go to jail, or attack a police officer. Why are you firing them up? So I'm in a position to tell the truth now, right? Because I was on both sides. And I'm the first guy to say I got a lot of respect for the police. And everybody's not perfect. I got beat up by a couple of bad cops. Bad, actually, twice, but on one occasion. But here's the thing. Even the bad cops that beat me up, maybe they were afraid of me because they knew I was out shooting everybody. Maybe they didn't want to take the chance because they wanted to go home to their families. I know one thing. No police have beaten me up anymore because I don't have that same attitude as before. So maybe it's something I'm exhuming out of myself that they sense, like we talked about earlier, because they have instincts as police officers, because they're on the street every day and you you get a sixth sense. I'll tell you what, 99%, and you guys notice, Mike Dow is my friend. He did the wrong thing. I had other cops that did the wrong thing. But they're a very, 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 very small percentage of people and no group or organization or human being is perfect. So I don't know anybody that's going to have a pers- perfect record of a hundred percent, but what they're persecuting the police for now, how safe is those, are those neighborhoods now? Who's suffering now? Because oh, you're attacking uh, yeah, the police. Look at Chicago and well, Chicago. And where, where was George Floyd kill? Uh, Milwaukee? Well, wherever it was, they, they realized they've made a huge mistake defunding the police. And oh, it was Minnesota. Min- Minnesota. Minnesota. Was that where, he got, I don't remember where he got killed, but I'll tell you one thing, Minnesota wanted to defund the police and then they came back and said, basically, I'm sorry, we can't get do this. Yeah, we can't, this is no good. Social workers don't work. But listen, I talked about George Floyd too the other day. I was just like George Floyd, right? He's black. I don't like the, the race thing because I grew up in an interracial neighborhood and we're all friends, black, white, Spanish. We're all Americans. We're all so uh, to me, I, I think that should get taken out of the equation. But he was a criminal, just like me. And unfortunately, he got killed. I'm not saying he deserved to get killed. I didn't deserve to get beat up the way I did either. But we, me and him, put ourselves in those positions where 
we put ourselves in a position to possibly get hurt or killed. And unfortunately, it shouldn't happen to him. As a, as a police officer, I think the guy obviously shouldn't have did what he did. It was amateur hour. Yeah. yeah. It really and, was. And I don't blame just him. The guys that were standing there should have stopped it. You know, I, I, I say all the time, too. It's The cops went there for a reason. I'm not saying what that cop did was right. You know, we all know that the cop was wrong. But the cop didn't just go up to him and say, hey, can I choke you? No, you know what? It, you, so the reason I say it's amateur hour is we're taught in the academy to give, well, I was anyway, to give what was called a bonus shot. So if somebody's being a loudmouth, somebody's being disrespectful to you, there are ways that the police have, they're not really trained, but there's things that you can do to hurt them where it won't leave any bruises, a camera could be right on you, and they'd never know anything was wrong. So that's why I say it's amateur hour. What he did was so blatant and out in the open. It's like in your your past life. You know, if you wanted to kill somebody, I, I still have a tough time saying that if you're looking at you. If you want to kill somebody, if you wanted to kill somebody, you're not going to walk, you're not going to do it right then and there. You're going to wait for the opportune time because yeah. otherwise that's, that's how you're going to get thrown in jail real fast. Yeah. It's amateur hour. At what point in your life did the veneer crack? Well, I think that the more I understood the rule book of the street and the mafia and I seen how it was hypocritical. And Give me an example of being hypocritical. Guys are saying that I'm a mobster to the core. That's what they're saying. La Cosa Nostra till I die. Till I, I die. I, I already know who you're talking about. Okay. So, yeah. And they're talking about, I'll never do this, I'll do that. But you're at it. So if you believe you're Cosa Nostra to the end, then you could be John Gotti and die in prison. But the problem with John Gotti dying in prison is, and this is the message to the kids, that poor man suffered his ass off being John Gotti to the end. He, he died in jail, choking on his own spit. He got beat up by a young guy, which he's an older guy. Mm. He's a young, big guy. There's nothing you do. He japped him. And that's that's unfortunately what happens when you're an older man in prisons, no matter who you are, because in jail, you find out there's all tough guys. No one cares who anybody is. And they can jap you. They can stab you from behind. And unfortunately- Beat you, that, over, beat you with a battery yeah, like Whitey Bulger. And, and it, yeah, and it, and it happened to him. And then he ended up in a hospital and he ended up having all kinds of issues in, in prison, right? So that's the message to these kids that say, do you really want to go out like that when you can be in at the beach with a beautiful girl? You can be at the movies. You can just take a walk in the park. You can go in your own shower. Now, anybody that tells me they don't care, they're lying. Of course they care. We all love our freedom. There's nothing like freedom. And I just want to go back to one thing. When we talk about George Floyd, I don't want to see that man die. I was hoping he would change his life like I changed my life. But he's not a hero. Unfortunately, he had a bad no. incident happen to him. The hero is the 13 guys that died in Afghanistan that got abandoned there. In Benghazi. Yeah. Yeah. yeah by our government. So- yeah, I got a I got a bad taste in my mouth because I don't like the way they're treating, and this, so I'm very verbal because I used to be a, a gangster, and I think that when I speak honestly about some of the stuff, one thing I can say is, veterans risk their lives like police officers. Anybody who puts a uniform on to protect the citizens in this country deserve a big salute from all of us. And when they're not getting it. I think guys like me that people try to say, oh, he's a tough guy. How tough is it to go out and, and hurt guys when they don't have a gun back? Or they, they have five guys, a baseball bat, and one guy. That ain't a tough guy. I got news for a lot of people. I said, there's a handful of tough gangsters out there. But overall, 90% of them aren't. 
So I want to tell the truth about how I, how the people that I know, the heroes or veterans that are friends of mine, or other people, when they go in and put their uniform, they might not come home. When you put on your shoes every day to be an officer and you're a cop or a fireman and you're going in a building, how do you get disrespected by this government now? Is To me, is the lowest thing I can do because one thing I can say about mob guys, they love the country. I don't know too many gangsters that ever say they're anti-America. I, I would I would venture, yeah. I, th- I you When know, you they, hear the government do this, they, they talk Elon the... Omar or whatever she, her name is. Yeah, Elon. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking against this country. She, the she married is, her own brother to uh, give him residency. Well, the problem with them is this. They don't dislike one thing in the country. So I want to ask them all, if there's anybody listening to us that don't like this country, I want to ask you, what country do you like better than this country? Just name one for us. And then I'm going to invite to pay them to go there. I'll pay it. So you can go there. What are you staying here for? If you got another country you like better than here, then go there. First, Whoopi Goldberg was going to leave if Donald Trump got in, right? Correct. But Whoopi Goldberg got abused by Candelisa Rice. She didn't say two words when Candelisa talked about what what she was talking about. Candelisa Rice is a bright, bright, very, very. She's she's on. Yeah, but there's positive people in the world. They, They got positive messages. Why are, you tr- why are you trying to cause the dissension and trying to cause racial dissension? And why are you trying to cause negative feelings with young kids? Why? Well, there, there's a couple different schools of thought out there. Uh, one of them is you've heard the, the Russian collusion and the Chinese collusion. And it's actually quite real from what I understand is because they'll, they'll bombard social media. And they're not for one particular side. They're not for right or left. They're, they're for division. Because what's the biggest lesson that you learn when fighting a war? Divide and conquer. It's mafia. That's typical. That's a typical thing. You've seen this throughout your life. You, you go, you get involved with a bunch of people. You never want to fight people all together, united. And that's, that's what's going on. And I, I kind of know that from very good sources that there is collusion, but they don't give a shit about right or left. They just want everybody apart. So... Some myths, the myths of your life versus the reality. Because I know in police world, we got there's a lot of myths versus reality. Everybody talks about the thin blue line. I have to tell you, mostly that's a myth. Mostly that's a myth. There's some guys who are tight with each other. They'll get their backs and everything. But when it comes to right versus wrong, nobody's going to blindly just back you up, even when you're dead wrong. There might be some, but that's not going to happen. What are some myths in the mafia versus the reality? I mean, you're talking like TV mafioso. We don't deal drugs. We all, <laughs> yeah, that's right. We all deal drugs. That's a Castellano thing, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so th- that that's a first big one. Second is all these guys are, are shooters or tough gangsters that earn their way. Half the guys I can mention to you right off the top of my head never use a gun in their life. It's not what anybody thinks. Yeah, I think one of our conversations, yeah. we were talking about one particular guy, yeah. and you're like, he only shot one guy to the point where I had to stop it. John, just think about what you just said there. He only shot one guy. If I only suck one dick. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, because they want people <laughs> to believe, truck once. They want to make these kids believe they have an image yeah. of these, they're insanely wild, tough guys. So these, these are all images that they, you know, they're good manipulators. Yeah. Street guys are good manipulators. They don't speak specifically. Speak specifically. Like if you went to a call when you, you know, when you... You're in your car and they, they call in a whatever code it is and you show up and you write in your report. I was there for a whatever, mm-hmm. 212.6, whatever you're going to say, right? You're specific on what you say. You're not just going to say, well, I got a call and we went to this area. 
You're going to say where you went, what area, what neighborhood, and whatever. And you're going to do your report. These guys won't do that because they never really did much. Right. They're just telling a good fantasy story about you or you or you or you. And that's it. They can't be specific. And and the, the, the thing of this life is talking about loyalty. You're asking what some of these things are. Well, loyalty is a joke. When you have a ton of money and they want it, your best friend shoots you in the back of the head. You know, when a, when a guy doesn't want to go to jail, he's slipping information like Whitey Bulger did to mm -hmm. the government. So he doesn't go to jail. Stand up guy, he's a gangster, gangster, everybody believes that shit. Uh, when you, when they get jammed up and they lose a case, like Joe Messina, the boss of the Banana family, he puts on a wire. And he turns. And he turns. But it's self-preservation. And that's what it's about. And one of the reasons, again, I go back to the police, what's going on, because when you're talking about the veterans and the police and you want to fire them, right, without pay, prior to the holidays, after they just risked their lives in any war that they were at, the vets, or any police officers who were out there when the pandemic, nobody really knew exactly what was going on, and they, they didn't care. They risked their lives over responders, whether police, firemen, EMS, whoever, truck drivers. But here's my biggest point. Forget about immigration if you're for it or you're against it. does not matter. You're letting 2 million people by our border, half a million already entered without a vaccine. So you're going to let them in without a vaccine, but then you want to fire people that risk their lives for our country and for the safety of this country. So they how just, does that equate? It doesn't. And they just, they just, this I think is the biggest F you, this uh, passive aggressive fuck you to police is they just said that, uh, I forget in what part of the country that their cell phone is now public information. Yeah. I saw that. Their cell phone. Seattle or something? Something like that. Like how, how do you do that? That's, that's personal property. I, I don't understand. Because this is, this is, they're trying just what you said earlier. The more chaos, this is done purposely. They want all this chaos because when they talk about the Second Amendment and the, the legal rights to carry, the guns that are being used in these streets and murders for the most part aren't from legal handguns. But when you leave a border open and you can bring in shiploads of arms and drugs and fentanyl and allowing criminals to come in unvetted, what do you think is going to happen? Well, you, so they're not doing this by accident. They're doing, they know what's going to happen. You have a unique, you have a very unique perspective on all of this stuff. Because you did, you did the drugs. You did some stuff that was on the other side of the law. And you saw the way you saw guys manipulate other guys. And you're seeing it on a larger scale now. And this is why your voice is so valuable. Because you have, you're the angel with a dirty face. Yeah. You know, you did all this bad stuff, but you're making amends to it now. And you, you have experience in order to, to speak on this stuff. My new show, right, I, you know, we call it the Elite Show mm -hmm. with MSCS Media. And I say part of that at the introduction, we're no angels. Every show I do, I say we're no angels. Because I want to say, I had a bad life. But it doesn't mean you got to continue on a bad life. So the, the meaning of my show or your show, I think or what we're really trying to accomplish is to reach that next kid that he doesn't have to follow that path. And, and I think I can't go back and take back what I did. It's never going to come back. We know that. But you can stop another kid from doing what I did. Hopefully, you can reach one, two, 10, 20, 30. And, but if you save one of them, yeah. if you just save one, we talk about this all the time. Constantly. If we reach one person and give them just a little tool to put in their toolbox to help them along with the anxiety of being in a life known as the mafia or being involved in a shooting as we were, this is what we do this show for. I thank you so much for coming on here because we're coming to the end. Where can we find you? 
You can find me on my Instagram. You can find him in your basement right now. He's sitting right here. <laughs> shh. I, I thought I'd just stay here. I don't know. I don't know if there's still a price on, on your head. So shh. This has been pre-recorded. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Instagram, True uh, John Elite. You can find me on JohnElite.com to show all the shows I'm doing, uh, books that I have out. My latest book, uh, John Elite Mafia International, by Lou Romano. It's uh, my latest book. It's uh, number five, actually. Well, I'm going to put links to all of these in the show. You're an accomplished author, too, now. It is. Listen. Yeah, I'm just trying to stay busy. You're a hustler. I'm a, I'm a capitalist. You're a capitalist. I'm just like AOC. <laughs> <laughs> At least I admit I'm a capitalist. <laughs> from, from a capo to a capitalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just don't get too rich. You'll get taxed like oh, she wants to. Well, listen, you've lived this life. And you've done some amazing things in the past, which maybe were a little darker. You've done some amazing things in your present, which I'm well aware of, and I, I commend you for it. But I really want to know what this life of yours has taught you. It taught me uh, there is no shortcuts, right? And there, there's not a, you know, it's not a race like everybody said. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon. We only go around once. So the second part of your life and anybody that's doing something, you can always turn your life around and change. It's never too late. And I think that's what this life taught me now. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It means a lot to us that you come to this humble show. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Mike. You guys want me to referee the fight after we're all fast? Nah, we, uh, no, we kiss it. We, go, we, we'll, we kiss it. We got a spoon after this. Oh, right. said, <laughs> Since this is season two, we went on a couple's retreat, you know, just <laughs> to get back to normal and bond a little bit more. But no, we're, we're I good. I just go upstairs and play with the dog. And I'm yeah, fine. yeah. So thank you so much for coming Thanks, on. guys. I, I really, really appreciate it. it. So that's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast. And let's think about all the stuff that we learned. Number one, there is no shortcuts. Everyone has a moral compass. Trauma reactions are very similar. But most importantly, don't waste your life on a myth. And that's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast, The Suffering of a Mobster with John Elite. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Suffering Podcast. Podcast.